So, you know, I have a great privilege today, and that privilege is that we're going to do a tag team teaching. Anybody like, well, what is that, WWE, where they wrestle, you know, and how you come back and you have people tag. So Caleb is going to bring the message with me. So halfway during it, I'll tag him. He'll come up and do some body slams, and we'll keep going, okay? So we're in the book of Mark, and we've been in the book of Mark for a long time, just going chapter by chapter through the life of Jesus. We are disciples of Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. And that's not easy, right? That's messy sometimes. And so we're looking in the book of Mark to say, what do we see in Jesus's life? What does he teach us? And what does that mean for us today as we follow Jesus? And so we're going to continue in the book of Mark today. Before we get started, I was thinking about in June of 2007, I was sitting at my computer and I was watching something. It was Steve Jobs, and he was announcing the first iPhone. This was the very first iPhone. It was in June of 2007. And I remember standing on the stage, and you know how Jobs was a great salesman, right? He could pitch anything. And he was doing the first iPhone, and it was a huge event, people watching all over the world. But at that time in 2007, conventional wisdom was that this new type of phone was never going to work. I remember Steve Ballmer, who was heading Microsoft at the time, he said, there's two reasons this phone is going to fail. Number one, nobody wants to type on a glass screen, because you remember you had the, uh, the Blackberries back then, and you would type on the button. So he said, nobody will ever learn how to type on a, on a uh, glass screen. And then he also said that it's too expensive. Nobody will pay for it. And so everybody, conventional wisdom of the day was that the iPhone was going to be a failure. And then 13 year, years later, you want to guess how many iPhones have sold? 2.2 billion, 13 years later. And what Steve Jobs was able to do was he was able to bunk, buck conventional wisdom, and his legacy really rests in that, is that he didn't think like the crowd. He went against conventional wisdom. And Apple is one of the most, uh, it's one of the most expensive and biggest companies today because he bucked conventional wisdom with the iPhone. And I was thinking about that idea of conventional wisdom and as we look through the book of Mark, one of the things that struck me was that Jesus showed that the kingdom of God went against conventional wisdom as well. Some people say it was an upside-down kingdom. If you think about who Jesus was, he wasn't a religious leader of his day. He was a carpenter. He was born in a city, and he was raised in a city that wasn't a, a very a popular nor big or powerful city. The people that he called to follow him were not the religious leaders of the day. They were fishermen and tax collectors and doctors. So they weren't the people that you would normally think who would follow a te great teacher in the day. And then his teaching was just radical. It just turned conventional wisdom upside down of his day. And this morning, Caleb and I are going to bring to you, we're going to see a clear picture of how Jesus taught about two groups from our passages and how he went against conventional wisdom as he taught us uh, the lessons of these two groups. We're going to look at the religious leaders of Jesus' days and what Jesus said about them versus a poor widow and what Jesus observed about her. And we're going to see in this passage this morning that he really flips the script. That the very things we think he would say about the religious leaders versus the poor widow, he really goes against conventional wisdom. And then we're going to use that to really shine a light in our own hearts. What's Jesus saying to us? So I'll tell you what, before we get in, let's pray. And let's ask God to, to lead us. Father, we are needy people. And so we confess that to you this morning, that we need you. We need your Holy Spirit to guide us, to guide our minds and our hearts. We just want you to lead us and to guide us. Father, would you lead us not into shame or to guilt, but would you lead us to freedom and joy? 
Father, I pray, bless Caleb, bless myself as we bring the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to start. There's no surprise here. I'm going to start with the big idea. And the big idea as we look at these two groups is this. Do you have the heart of a taker or the heart of a giver? That's what we're going to explore this, this morning. Do you have the heart of a taker or do you have the heart of a giver? Because ultimately what we're going to see in these two groups' life is it flowed from the heart. And the religious leaders, they were the takers. And the poor widow, what flowed from her heart was the heart of a giver. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. So let's look at the takers first. These are the religious leaders. And to go Mark 10, 38 through 40, we're going to put this up on the screen. You also have Bibles in your pews. But let's see what God, what Jesus talked about the religious leaders. So we're in Mark 12, verses 38 through 40. So let's start and we'll read through that. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And they have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So pretty harsh words by Jesus. As a matter of fact, most of the, when you see Jesus interacting with these religious teachers, he didn't pull punches. He just sort of said it like it was. And he said three things about these religious leaders who were the takers in our narrative today. Number one, they were religious hypocrites. They were hypocrites. He says they walk around in flowing robes. They wanted to be greeted with honor in the marketplace. So they had the, the appearance, right? They had these flowing robes. They were, they were these religious garments that they would walk around in. And people could look at them from afar and say, this is someone important. This is a religious leader. They wanted to be greeted. So if you went by them in the marketplace, you had to stop and you had to, to, to give them a, an honor, honorable greeting. They liked to be greeted because they were important men. It said they wanted the most important seats in the synagogue. So when they came into the synagogues where they sat, you were not allowed to sit. That was the important seat that they, they were going to see because they were important people. Or the places of honor at banquets. They sat down at the front near the host, right? They had the place of honor in the banquets. And it says, for show they made lengthy prayers. They often stood on the street corners of the day and they would pray with outstretched arms. And so people would be going to and fro from their work. And and they're on the street corners. You would see the religious leaders that were there praying and making lengthy prayers for show. I wrote down, these men trafficked in outward religion. They had the respect of the people, but in reality, in the kingdom of God, they were far from God. Remember what Jesus said about him? He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, teachers of the law. He said, outside the cup is clean, but inside, what is it? It's dirty. He said, outside, you're like whitewashed tombs. It's like a a tomb that's white and it's washed and it's clean, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. They were religious hypocrites. And the irony was, in in Jesus' context and culture, they were the people that were at the top of the food chain in religion. They were the people that were teaching the people how to follow God. And yet Jesus looked right through them and said, you're hypocrites. That was so countercultural to the way the typical Jew would have thought in Jesus' day. They were the people that had it together. And Jesus said, nope, you don't understand. If you look inside their hearts, these people are takers. They're religious hypocrites. So that's number one. Number two, they were greedy. What's interesting is these teachers of the law, they received no pay. They didn't have any pay. So they weren't paid like a salary like we're paid today. They relied upon the hospitality of devout Jews to basically take care of their needs. 
And some of them used this, this hospitality. They exploited it. They cheated the poor out of their homes, and they took advantage of the rich. It says here, they devour widows' houses. And they had fake piety. But, and, and, and through this fake piety, this religious piety, they wanted to get rich. They wanted to gain status and recognition. And they were captured by their greed. Jesus said this in Luke 16, 13 through 15. He had just told a parable of a shrewd manager. And then at the, at the end of the parable, he says this. No one can serve two masters or no servant can serve two masters. Either we hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We all know that passage, right? You cannot serve both God and money. But listen what comes next. And it says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this, and they were sneering at Jesus. I can just see them there, right? These are the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. And they were the people that had the money back in those days by exploiting people. And it says, the Pharisees who loved money, they heard it and they were sneering. Can you imagine their face? They were sneering at Jesus as he said, you can't serve God and money. Because they thought in their cultural context that the righteous people were the rich people. And they were the righteous people, so they got the wealth, but they got the wealth through exploiting people, both the poor widows whose homes they devoured, as well as the rich people. And Jesus looked straight through that and said, you can't serve God in money, and you serve money. You love money. And he said this, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Those are strong words, aren't they? He was looking at them and saying, you know, you, what you highly value, money, recognition, power, what you exploit people for, for money, recognition, and power, you, you, in the eyes of men, that's really highly valuable. But I look at your heart, and when I look at your heart, I detest these things that you go after. You're a taker. You're a taker of these things. They were greedy. And I'm coming down pretty hard on them, aren't I? But hold on, I'm going to shine it back on us in just a minute. The third thing we learn about these takers is they would ultimately be punished most severely. They would ultimately be punished most severely. Jesus said there will be a day of reckoning for these greedy religious hypocrites. And Jesus tells us how they would be punished most severely. Why? Why would Jesus most, why would he punish them most severely? Because they were responsible for shaping the faith of the people that followed them. These people were stewards of, of the people that followed them, they were stewards of their faith. They were the heads of their synagogues, their religious teaching of the day. And instead of stewarding them with generosity and grace and to follow the kingdom of God, they were greedy and they were takers and they were hypocrites. And Jesus said, because the way you steward and shepherd my people, you do it with such bad hearts that one day when you are judged, you're going to be judged most severely. Their behavior oppressed and misled the very people they were supposed to lead. Remember Jesus said, woe to you because you take all of these rules and laws and you put them on people's backs and you weigh them down. That was the people they were leading. They put these rules and laws on their back, but yet they were hypocrites. They weren't following the very laws that they put on the backs of people. And Jesus said, because of this, you're going to be punished most severely. So there were three characteristics of these takers, these religious leaders. They were religious hypocrites, they were greedy, and they would ultimately be punished most severely because of that. So when we look at them, 
our tendency in our culture today is we say, yeah, Jesus was always dogging those religious leaders, and they were just the bad people. And we tend in our minds to basically put them in a category and sort of discount them. I heard Tim Keller say one time, be careful about doing that, because you are probably more like the religious leaders than what you think you are. And this is where the conviction comes in. We're probably more like them than we think that we are. Because think about it. If we go to church oftentimes and we know the Bible, people look at us and they say, they're pretty religious, like they've got it together. Like that Patrick, he's a pretty religious dude, right? He walks around and he knows the Bible and he can preach and he can do all this and he does ministry for a living. So people hold you up and they sort of put you on a pedestal. And then also, we also know that we live in a culture of prestige and power, right? Just like what they wanted. They wanted prestige. What do we value highly today? We want people to think we're good and that we're somebody. We want prestige. We want the praise of men. We also want power. So our very culture, especially here in Prairie Village, we're very about the appearance, aren't we? We have to have it all together. You know, we have to live in the right houses, in the right neighborhoods. We have to drive the right kind of cars. So, so we live in a culture in America that, that really values the outward. And we live in a, in a subculture, Prairie Village, that really values the outward. But what can happen to us is the, the outside of the cup can be so clean. But yet, if we're not honest, we may miss how wrecked we are on the inside. And we may not see it. One time, I, I spent a month praying for God to show me truth. And that's a scary prayer. Because there's so much we don't see, and we don't know that we don't see it because of the culture that we live in. And so if you were a religious leader back in Jesus' days, my bet is you didn't know that you were deceived. You thought you were doing the right thing. And so let's don't just say, well, that was them, and that was what Jesus talked about them. Let's look it back at us and say, where does this come into our lives, and where are we fooling ourselves? Because what struck me was, as I was praying about this before the service was, this is me a lot of times. And I thought about why. Like, why do I value, like, people's praise? And why do I value being greedy and being a taker? Why do I value it? And I thought there was really two issues. The first issue was around identity. And the core question that I really struggle with is, am I enough? Am I enough? So when I look at my identity, I, I think about how I was wounded in my childhood. And I think about those wounds which just sit there, and those wounds create this question, am I enough? Am I enough? And what happens is if we don't look for God for our enoughness, what we end up doing is we start to look for the world for our enoughness. And so it's what Morgan thinks about me, or it's what someone else thinks about me, or it's what my 401k plan or the house that I live in. Because I'm not letting God be my enough, I start to look at the world for my enough. And what I'm trying to do is really take this identity hole that I have from the wounds of my childhood, and I'm saying, God, you're not enough. I've got to find it in other ways. And man, it drives us crazy, doesn't it? I mean, it is such a trap, isn't it? If you're always worried about what people think about you, if you're always worried about what your 401k plan or your paycheck's going to be, you fall into a trap. But what we've got to do is we've got to say, okay, in God's eyes, we are enough. Right? His love endures forever. 
You are his beloved son and daughter. He is well pleased regardless of what you do or what you don't do. In God's eyes, you are enough. The second issue when I struggle to be like the takers is in the area of provision. And that's where I ask the question is, do I have enough? Do I have enough? You know, and I don't know about y'all, but one of the, the narratives I have to fight is a narrative of scarcity in my mind. Whereas I'm always thinking like, do I have enough? Do I have enough for retirement? Do I have enough to make it to the end of the month? Do I have it enough to do this and this? And if we're not careful, we can live under this narrative of scarcity. And what we look to is our own abilities to provide enough for us. So we have to have the right kind of job. We have to make the right kind of investments. We have to do the right kind of things. And instead of being generous, we become takers and greedy. And it's all about us because we're living out a narrative of scarcity, which means that we live in fear. And let me tell you, I do this for a living. I go around and I teach people this principle, but yet I struggle to live it out in my own life. I'm like those religious leaders. I'm a hypocrite in this area. So what we have to do is go from a narrative of abundance, a narrative of scarcity to a narrative of abundance, that God is our provider. And not only is he our provider, he's our father provider. So I guess my point here is this, as I look at my own life, and I say, you know what? I'm not too different in a lot of ways than those religious leaders are. I want people to think highly of me. I want to provide for myself. I want to be a taker. I don't want to be a giver. And that's really honest. And I bet if we were to get authentic with each other, we'd probably all have the narratives and the tapes of what I'm talking about, wouldn't we? If we're honest. So then the question is, I've given you the bad news, but what's the good news? And that's the second part of our story which is what I'm going to let Caleb come up and lead you through. So come on up, Caleb. Thank you, Patrick. Um, Morgan's been asking me to teach a couple times, and every time he's asked me, I've always said no. So mainly because I've never done it before, but as I looked at this passage and really unpacked it, I realized I really don't want to do it because the passage of a giver of the widow She's not like me at all, and I'm not like her. And so I really didn't want to preach because I can't identify with this poor widow who's being faithful in her giving. Patrick, you convicted me with how I'm a taker, and, and I don't like that. So we're going to look at this passage in Mark 10, 38 through 44. We're going to look at the widow's offering. It says in 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And I sat with this verse, and I sat with it some more, and sat with it some more, and I kept asking, God, what do you want to show me in this text? And I noticed three things. The first thing that I noticed is that we see great faith in the midst of circumstance. This widow is prey. As Patrick said, these religious leaders devour widows' houses, and this woman is a widow, and she is prey for religious leaders, but her faith is still to God. This woman also gives not knowing where her next meal will come from. 
as the text said, this is all she had to live on. So she's giving this not knowing how she's going to have food or bread the next, for her next meal. And this gift was part of a collection that also went to support people also in her similar position. And she sees the importance of this and still decides that she's going to give and help out. So I've seen that and I saw how that translates into when Jesus is being tempted by the devil when he's in the wilderness. And one of the verses in that temptation is Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what I saw was that her faith is not dependent upon her current situation. The second thing that I noticed was that we see generosity in lack. This woman, because she's a widow, she's not on a fixed income. She's not getting, you know, a pension or anything like that because her husband has passed away. She is dependent upon this system of this offering of people providing for her. So she's not, she doesn't have much. And not only that, because of these religious leaders devouring these widows' houses, this woman is dependent on the very system that's also keeping her in this position. But she doesn't withhold. She could have kept a portion of it. She could have made a valid reason, in my opinion, that would have been very good. She only has a couple cents. I would have agreed with her. You don't need to give. Go buy food. And when I look at the temptation of Christ, I look at Matthew 4, 7. Jesus replied, it is also written, do not put your Lord, your God, to the test. Her giving is not testing Christ's faithfulness. She's giving without anything. She's not giving without expecting anything in return. And that also convicted me. The third thing that I notice is that we see the value that Jesus places on the gift. Like Patrick said, this ceremony was a show of wealth. And even when people would go and put monies into these collection jars, they would empty these bags and it would make a lot of noise. And this was a sign of show of importance. And her gift of two small copper coins probably made little to no sound at all. And people would have ridiculed and mocked because she doesn't have much to give. The second thing about that is that the rich people gave out of their profits. If you look at today, these are modern business owners that give to charities that really wouldn't affect their quality of life. But the widow's gift was a gift of sacrifice, love, and worship. And when I look back at the temptation of Christ, the last thing he says to Satan is, away from me, Satan, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Her gift was not about her amount, but about her heart of worship to the Lord that she serves. Those are the, so the, her three things were, we saw great faith in her midst of circumstance. We saw her generosity in her lack. And we saw that the value that Jesus places on this gift. And I looked at this over and over and thought, how do I respond to this? A friend of mine told me once that God wants your time. He wants your talent and he wants your treasure. So for the past year, I've been with Jason, or I'm sorry, Jacob and Shane. Um, and honestly, it's been the most challenging thing I've ever done. These guys know me better than some of my closest friends, and they're able to come alongside me and reveal to me God's will for my life. And if, it's actually a really 
it's challenging, but it's a great experience, and I would recommend you guys do that, go through that. And so just recently, I had the pleasure or displeasure of going through a a propitious moment for decision or action, or it means the appointed time in the purpose of God. This is a moment where Christ or the kingdom has an opportunity to break into an area of my life. And this area from my life specifically was in tithing and giving. Now, I am not a regular tither, and what I mean to say is I don't tithe at all, not even regularly. I'm very new to this, and I had several excuses I had learned to use when it came to tithing. It wasn't something I had learned to do. I grew up very poor. I grew up on thrift store clothes and food bank donations. I grew up sometimes not having hot water in my house or electricity. I grew up with creditors calling the house, my dad ignoring, you know, past due notices in the mail. And even for a brief spell when I was in high school, I was homeless for a time. So I, there was a period where we would sleep in the car that we drove, you know. Those are extreme moments, but... I didn't know that those were other people's experiences. I thought it was just mine, and I thought it was normal, so I didn't think much of it. And I didn't, I didn't think that I was poor. It was just a part of my childhood, and it was, just, it was kind of the norm for me. Money wasn't a subject in my home. It was just something that I knew we didn't have a lot of. You know, some people say we were poor, but we didn't know it. I was very certain that I was poor. <laughs> So naturally, when I get older and I get money of my own, I'm, I decided that I would keep it at all costs. Money is something in my eyes I never had enough of, and it was something I tried very hard to keep. Now, mind you, I grew up also not seeing my parents tithe. And as I learned biblical truth about money and tithe, I made excuses why this area didn't need to be aligned with Christ. I was justified in not tithing because I gave my time. I would serve at any opportunity there was. I would volunteer for anything. People need somebody, I'll, I, yep, I'll do it. I'm a talented person, I'm a musician, I play the drums, I play piano, I can sing, I play bass. So if there was ever a need for a musician, I gave my talent. I'll do it. For the Lord, I will give these two gifts. But my treasure was mine. God did not get my money. And going through this Kairos process with my huddle was difficult because I had to look at my heart ultimately and decide if I was going to continue in disobedience. Again, I grew up in church, so I knew all the scriptures about money and tithing and God wants 10%. And I'm thinking, if I give God 10%, something's not getting paid. <laughs> so he's not getting 10%. They said, well, why don't you give 5%? Well, I was like, well, I kind of want to eat out this week. Well, why don't you give an offering? Well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to put gas in my car. I need to give my money and I made up for that and my time so one key verse that Morgan shared to me was in Malachi said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. So after weeks of prayer and going back to his word, I decided very recently that I would just start. I got my faithful, and I'm going to see what happens. And nothing happened. 
And to be truly honest, I bought a lottery ticket. Give <laughs> my 10%, I'm going to go buy a lottery ticket. And it's Real quick, I am so mad when I don't win. Oh my goodness. Okay. But I figured because I was faithful with little, God was going to bless me because it's the flood. But I was okay. Money was tight, but even a moment when I tithed and looked at my bank account and said, oh, I'm going to be all right. And then I got an email saying, your credit card's broken. But I am not going to be all right. Holy smokes, I'm going to have to, let me email Morgan and see if I can get that money back. I, but I got a phone call right after I got that email saying, hey, do you, we have a job for you that pays X amount of dollars. I'm like, Oh, great. God is faithful. Goodness gracious. I was so bummed that God had came through and provided for me because I wanted a reason to not tie. Now, Christ is still very much in the process of teaching me how to be faithful with what you arrived in this area. That's why I didn't want to talk about this because I'm not good at it. And I struggle with trusting him. Three things I've learned that God is teaching me and it's tough is first thing is one withholding from God never brought me abundance. Money's always been tight and me not tithing never brought me a big bank account. The second thing he taught me was not trusting God never brought me stability. My tithing is something that I feel like I have to manage on my own. It's my struggle. And if I tithe, it means that my finances are no longer in my hands. And I, if I'm really honest with myself, I don't trust God enough to provide for me. And the last thing that God taught me is that my disobedience has never brought me a blessing. So I looked at the heart of this woman who is so generous with little. And I looked at my life and realized I'm such a taker and such a hypocrite. And that's why I didn't want to do this message because it, I haven't arrived. I don't have it together. So how do I move from being a taker to a giving, to a giver. And the first thing I would encourage you guys to do, if you can identify with anything that I've said, was begin in prayer. And a good verse that I have been praying for the past month and a half was for the Lord to search my heart. It says in Psalm 120, 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. I prayed that over and over and over and over, and I still pray it because I, I still lack faith. The second thing I would encourage you to do is examine your heart and look at your current giving. And I want you to ask yourself, what does your giving say about your current heart's condition? 
It says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does your giving say about your heart's condition? There's a pastor in uh, Oklahoma, his name's Craig Groeschel. He asked a question in one of his sermons. He said, what if God's greatest blessings were on the other side of your greatest fears? I was terrified to give 10%, which is, it's not, it's not even a lot of money. It's 10%. But I was terrified to give that up because I thought I wouldn't have enough. The last thing I would encourage you to do is after you've prayed and after you've considered and searched your heart is to start somewhere. If you aren't a giver, I would encourage you to start somewhere, even if it's 1% or $1. Start somewhere and see what God does. Patrick, I'm going to have you come back up, and we're going to talk about the overflow experience that's coming up. So, yeah, we have a third opportunity for us to all to grow in this, and that's called an overflow experience. And uh, it's March 27th. We start on Friday night with a meal, and we'll go for a couple of hours, and then we'll go into Saturday morning breakfast up until lunch. And we do these all over the world now. And uh, there's a very great experience just to go deeper in this, not with a teacher, like not me up here teaching you, but around story and around conversation, around how do we move from takers to givers. And I'm telling you, it's a powerful time. So I know, you know, Friday night, Saturday morning, that's a, you're going to have to give, right? That's an opportunity to be generous because you're giving up your time to go deeper on a topic that many of us don't like to go on, right? If we're honest. But I can tell you, having put tens of thousands of people through these overflow experiences, people always come out the other side and go, that was so much different than what I expected. That was amazing. So we're doing one March 27th and 28th. We'll uh, let you know as we get closer where it's going to be, how you can sign up. Um, so just consider that. Maybe pencil in on your calendar, then we'll give you more details as we get closer. Okay? So just let's, let's, uh, let's summarize. We all have an opportunity. We can be takers or we can be givers. And what we were talking about, Caleb and I, was a lot of times when we're takers, it's because there's fear there. It's because we really don't trust God to provide. We have to provide for ourselves. And I love what Caleb said at the end of those three things. You know, whenever I withheld from God, I didn't accumulate, right? I didn't get more. My disobedience never leads to flourishing, does it? And it's right there for us. And one of the things I love about the idea of giving is we really can't, we can't be hypocrites in our giving. You can go home right now and look at your bank account, look at your statement, and either you are or you're not. You know, if I ask you, do you pray a lot? We can sort of fake it, right? Well, yeah, I sort of pray. Do you read your Bible? Yeah, I sort of read my Bible. But this is an area that's pretty black and white. It'll show you. Your bank statement will show you. And listen, God doesn't need anything from you. He just wants something for you in this area. And what he wants for you is to experience the life that is truly life. A life of taking. These religious leaders, when they died, they were judged most severely. And what God wants for us, because he loves us, is he wants us to live an abundant, overflowing life of joy. And that's what a giving life is. Think about the most generous people you know. Are they not the most joyous people you've ever met? And that's what God wants for us. So let's pray, and then we'll close. 
thanks for checking in to the Serve Community Church podcast. If you're interested in more information on how to connect with our community, feel led to support us in any way you can or have any further questions, check us out online on social medias like Facebook or Instagram or at our website at servecc.org. Thank you.